there's got to be some mistake. It's got nothing to do with him. A life sentence was not carrying the knife. I'm still very worried about my son in prison. And I don't think anybody heard or anybody saw. But I said, I love you. Hello, you are tuned in to Always an Alternative, the podcast, where we discuss serious youth violence and the impact it has on our families, friends and communities. We also discuss gang crimes, unpicking the mind of individuals that went down the wrong path to discover the pivotal point which enabled them to change their lives around. Real talk, real people. Enjoy listening. On today's podcast, we have Vivian whose son was sentenced to life imprisonment after what was meant to be a robbery went horribly wrong. So Vivian, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what you do please? Hello, my name's Vivian. I'm a mum. Uh, my background is in health and social care, but at the moment um, I'm a retired social worker. Why is it that you agreed to take part in this podcast? Well, um, because um, I have a son who is in prison and he's on a life sentence and I didn't want any other families to experience what we have has experienced and been through and I didn't want anybody else to suffer or to lose their family members to knife crime. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So um, you mentioned that your son is in prison. What happened? What was the scenario about how he ended up there? A long time ago now, um, my son was involved in a robbery and it went really badly wrong. He went out with a big knife to do a robbery with his co-accused. And in this scenario, there was a struggle and a and panic um, and it ended up in a fight and because my son used a knife he ended up killing the other person it wasn't his intention at the outset but nevertheless this happened um, he was arrested and remanded in custody and he was taken to court where his case was heard he was convicted of murder and given a sentence of 20 years. What was it like before that? What was his upbringing? Because a lot of, a lot of the times uh, people like to associate some crimes that have been committed with households that are in disrepair and, you know, that they've been brought up a, a bad way and they've got a bad attitude and, mm. you know, the people believe that they're like this from a very young age. Like, what was it like growing up? My son, um, he is, is a loving boy. He was a loving boy, a, a very good boy. And he came from a good family in inverted commas, you know, just ordinary, everyday people, working people, good set of morals. Um, he went to a good school, a, a good secondary school. So I made sure that I chose a good school for him that he was going to do well at. We didn't live in the rough area, but we lived nearby the rough area. But I always kept an eye on him and made sure that he didn't get himself into any problems. At school, he was very, very well liked. He was very popular. He had a good personality. He always used to go to church with his gran, which is why what happened was just so much out of character for him. 
it wasn't anything that we would have expected. It was something that just went tragically wrong and shouldn't have happened. Like the run-up to the incident of, of the crime that was committed, did you notice a change in any behaviour? Um, was he out more? Was he in more? Was he, was he in touch with you as much? Did you notice him like distance himself away from you? Or was everything just normal? Anthony, that is such a good question. It really is, because by the time he was around 18, he decided that he wanted to leave home and he was ready to, to leave home and become more independent. But we started having issues maybe a couple of years before that around him smoking marijuana. And we didn't approve and we didn't want it in the house. I didn't want him going out there to buy it. I didn't think it was going to do him any good, but it's what he wanted to do. And I think he probably felt like, look, I want to go get away from under my mum's jurisdiction. I want to do what I want to do. That's why I think it was one of the reasons he wanted to, to, to set out on his own. It wasn't even long. We counted. It was about six weeks since my son had left home that he got himself into trouble with going out and committing this robbery. So it seems to me that since he'd left home, He'd had more time to smoke the marijuana. I don't know if he smoked anything else or took anything else. And he was around friends at the time who were doing similar things. But I think the smoking had had a dramatic effect on him because it did affect his mental health. And it also had an impact on his reasoning as well. And I just remember when he was at home and one time... He'd smoking some he's smoking something and he was in bed and he say mom I don't, I don't feel too well or mom I don't feel well and I remember he's just not being in the right mind and I remember having to take him to the hospital and and waiting and waiting and waiting with him in the hospital to see a doctor and we saw all the nurses and 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 we were there for hours and hours and hours and then we left before we saw the doctor because we've been there for hours and hours and he was feeling better but at the time he was really really scared because of what he'd smoked or what was in it, it was really having a bad effect on him. So that was one of the times. Then another time he was crying and being paranoid and delusional because of the effects of what he was smoking. I hadn't realised at the time, and I don't think society realised at the time, even marijuana can bring on psychosis. It can have a terrible effect on your mental health, especially if you've got any genetic vulnerabilities. That's true. A lot of people see it as a harmless drug, but as you say, it can affect your mental health. Um, mm. I noticed before we get on to the next question, I noticed mm. um, you you mentioned his friends at the time. Now, mm. were they were they up to the same sort of things as him, or were they sort of different? Was they trying to keep away from that sort of behaviour? I think some of the friends they they were smoking and maybe doing their own thing. But I think the, the biggest influence that, that he had was, was one of his friends who he was close to, that they hatched the plot to go out and, and earn money. And that person was also taking drugs and probably taking harder drugs. Both of them together just wasn't a very good combination. So that friend, is he still his friend now? Does he still talk to him? Or Well, that, that friend actually went to prison as his co-defendant. As, oh, okay. Yeah, so oh, he he got into trouble for he, he for manslaughter. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, but but other but other friends 
interestingly enough, you talk about other friends. Um, there's not many friends that have remained in contact. There's one or two, but majority are not in contact, which is quite sad. And I, I know people have got their own lives and I know it's been a long time, but it is pretty sad. But I think it emphasises um, the importance of your family because even if you haven't got your friends or they don't stand by, by you, the people who are going to stand by you are your family members. Mm -hmm. Family becomes so important to you if you are a prisoner. And, and how about you? Have you? Because obviously you, people look at it that an attacker, because they've done the offence, there's no victims associated with that attacker. However, you're a victim. So do you yeah. rely on your family to cope and your friends? And, and how have you got on? It's um, terrible and it's a horrible situation to be in, having your son as the perpetrator, because that is not what we're about. That is not what our family is about. That is not my background. My background is helping people. So for me to be on the other side of, of the coin is unthinkable and unbelievable how i've got through is in the early days i um set up a support group for families of prisoners because I, I needed other people to talk to I, I needed to share my experiences with other people so that kind of gave me some comfort in the early days meeting with other families often it was mothers who had a son in prison and it's just it's just horrible to know people uh, so many people around me saying oh I've got a son in prison or my son's been in prison and it's just it's not just something that I'm used to but it helped to meet together in this support group and then I've got my family and they're they're they're, they're behind me a hundred percent and my mum and my dad and um they're there and they'll come on visits as well they'll they'll visit my son they'll write to him so they're, they're supporting me in the background and also my mum's church are being very good at like coming to visit me and praying for me and always saying prayers you know and always asking how my son is and then I've got some friends who are there a hundred percent and very caring and I've got other people who are not so much so who would I, I expected more from them but I didn't get that, what I needed from them, but I try to concentrate on those people who are helping me and helping the family rather than the, on those that don't. If we could rewind it yeah. to how you found out and how did you feel at that time and like what was your first thoughts and what, and, and what did you do? I didn't know that anything had gone wrong um, at all, uh, I heard about this incident on the on the on the TV. So I'm not I'm not kind of going to details because I don't want to upset anybody, um, especially the families, the family of the victim who who might be listening. But just to say that I did, I was aware of an incident, but I didn't think it had anything to do with my son. Days later, I had a knock on the door and it was two police detectives knocking at my door asking me if i knew where my son was and in connection with it with this incident i'm thinking well, what do they want to know about my son for 
he's, he's got nothing to do with it, I'm sure. I didn't know where he was. And I said, oh, let me try and ring him. And I couldn't ring him. I couldn't get hold of him because by that time he'd left home overwhelmed and thinking there's got to be some mistake. He's got nothing to do with him. It did turn out that he was involved and he, he, was, um, he was the perpetrator. So what was the whole court process like for you? Had you been in court before? Was this the first time? I had been to visit court before, maybe when I was at school or something like that. But um, going to court, um, it would be, it's the Crown Court. So it's, um, it's very, very nerve-wracking. The building's very imposing. It's got a sense of doom about it. Um, but um, on the day... Um, when I was going to, when I was going to court for the trial, I just I just felt so sick, and I felt I felt so depressed, and um, I was um, I went upstairs into the public public gallery, and I was aware that other people were around me. Some of my friends came, and my family came, but also behind me, I was aware that the victim's family was sitting behind me as well. So that was really difficult. And looking down from, from the public gallery and looking down onto my son, like being brought in in handcuffs and that is so alien, that's my son, do you know what I mean? And he is, he is now classed as a criminal, but I think eventually they took the hands, handcuffs off him and his co-defendant was there as well. Uh, and, um, it was just it's just a surreal experience and there wasn't so much of a trial because um we, we didn't go go through a trial because as such because if you plead guilty they don't have a trial i think they just outline outline the case but mm-hmm. um the judge read all the documentation and he read like the supporting statements um, you know, for my son, but that didn't carry any sway really, because um, he, he said he, he said that um, the judge said if you plead guilty to um, murder, then there's only one sentence that he can give, and that is a life sentence. So when he announced that, I think I could hear sighs of relief behind me, probably from the victim's family but I was just really really saddened and like my heart was very very heavy and my son I could I could see him looking up at me and I just kind of said I mouthed it quietly and I don't think anybody heard or anybody saw but I said I love you yeah I had to say that to him and he just nodded his head and then he was taken down yeah it it was terrible Terrible, terrible day. What did he look like? Did did because you know when people go through traumas, you can, you can tell them the face and the colour of the skin. Did he look the same as your son when he was in that court, or did he look different to you? I think he. I think there was. I think there was. Um, you could see he was under stress, but I think he was trying not to show he was under stress and tried to show that he was brave. But I could could see he was under stress, and his co-defendant just looked unwell. Oh, yeah, really? looked very unwell, yeah. I think the judge saw that as being unremorseful. 
but anybody who goes to court, they always say the same things. They haven't got remorse, but you, it's kind of like they want to see remorse there and then. Yeah. Rather, you don't, they don't see the people sitting in the cells for hours on end, mm. feeling remorseful because even though he's committed the crime and he's done it, it's still trauma to the person who has done it. And obviously trauma and trauma for the victim as well. My, my son does carry remorse and feels remorse, but the judges and the press, they don't want to see it and they, they don't acknowledge it. It's, oh, you've got to show remorse when they want you to show remorse in the way that they want you to show remorse. As you said, it is trauma and he's going through a lot, even though he, he did do something bad, he's still going yeah. through a lot. So there's a, there's a lot of things that he needed to work out himself. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a very sticky situation. So you said that he was given a life sentence. How yeah. many years is that? For my son, the life sentence was, um, he was, it was 20 years. 20 but he years. Did, the, the, the judge didn't announce it there and then in court. He said a life sentence. And with a life sentence, the thing is what, what people don't realise is that you have to serve it all. It's not half like a lot of, um, sentences and you, you spend the rest of the, the, the other half in the community you do the full amount so it's a full 20 years before you're even up for parole so it doesn't mean after 20 years you're going to get parole it means they will look at your case after 20 years and then you'll be on license for the rest of your life if you get parole and you're in the community they will keep an eye on you. They'll quickly recall you back to prison. If you're mixing with the wrong people, if you get yourself into trouble, if they have any worries about you, you soon get recalled back to prison. Do you, so do you think that the sentence that it was given, do you feel that it was fair? I didn't think that the law was fair because if you, if you, um, if you carry a knife and you kill somebody, even though you don't intend to kill that person, you can get charged with murder. And th that doesn't feel fair to charge somebody with murder when the intent wasn't there, but nevertheless, that's the law. So that's what you, that's what you risk when you're carrying a knife to get charged with murder, mm. even though you don't intend to. So, um, and maybe in some cases, you, you might be able to get some kind of plea for manslaughter but in our case it wasn't offered and you know so therefore you um you're going to get prosecuted for murder maybe if he'd gone for a full trial the jury might have seen or ruled in my son's favor but our solicitors were saying no do not go to trial because if you go to trial you've got a higher chance of being convicted. And because you go to trial, they'll put more onto your sentence. So if you plead guilty now, this is the best option for you. And they'll take it into account that you pleaded guilty. However, that didn't work. He got even higher than what we anticipated. So okay. it's like, what the hell? Do you know what I mean? I kind of regret, I regret so much not taking it to trial my son at the same time didn't want to put the family through it and he was only 18 to make those big decisions yeah. for the rest of his life we only had to rely on the on the solicitor and the barrister 
and they were saying, yeah, you know, this is your best option, and we went with it. They piled even more on top. It wasn't what we were expecting at all. The judges do have kind of a, an unconscious bias, especially when they see a black man in court. And it's not just my opinion. I think st- statistics prove and show that black people get longer and harder sentences. Yeah, the stats do show that, unfortunately. And it, and it is a very, very sad thing. Hopefully, you know, this whole Black Lives Matter movement will give the way they look at it a reshake, hopefully. But do you know, I, I know you can't answer this because you didn't do it, but do you feel that you knew why he did it? I'll never exactly know why. I kind of think that is a, a question that my son has to answer and I, I wouldn't like to speak for him, but only to say that it was something that was totally unexpected and it was something totally out of character. And I think the effects of the drugs pay, played a big part in his behaviour. And also, I would say, um, being young and, and not being fully, fully developed and making big mistakes yeah so it was 18 when he did it so do you yeah. think that you know at 18 people well they, they say that females mature faster than males yes. so at 18 do you feel is a boy a man at 18 just overnight yeah no i, I don't believe so I, I don't believe so because the, the your brain is still developing it, it hasn't fully developed yet at that age so yeah so even though he's classed as an adult he he still hadn't fully developed and he's still exploring his world and still having his own thoughts and and maybe you've you've got your testosterone to deal with and um, and maybe you feel like I've got to be a man and this is the way I have to be a man or show that I'm a man and that that type of thing so you're not just because you're aging doesn't mean that you're that you're fully mature you know, you don't just become a man or, or a woman overnight. It's something yeah. that you get gradual. So how long has he been locked up for now? I know you said he got 20 years. Yeah, so like at the moment, um, my son is just about done 17 years. So he's he's got about, well, he's got about another three years before um, his parole hearing. Um, he kind of, like when he first started off in prison, he was like a... Um, what they call a cat a prisoner so your high security prisoner and so f- and you and they're probably one of the worst prisons and you've got to kind of um work through to become category b and then category category c and then when you get to cat category d when you work towards that then you get to more um semi-open conditions where you are allowed to maybe go out to um, college or work when you're coming towards um, the end of your sentence. So that's kind of like a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, if he eventually gets there, that he'll have more opportunities to, 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 to actually get out into the community and, and, and maybe study. But, you know, while he's been in there, he has he has done a degree as well. He has okay. educated himself, and he also wants to do a master's as well. You've got so much time, and and at the moment, I think uh, when I spoke to you earlier that they're on lockdown because of the coronavirus. So 
they're locked up for 23 hours a day in the cell. So what have you found hard about the experience like at the start and then at the middle and now you're coming up to towards like the end? And also, what did the different categories, um, you talked about category A, B, C, D, what did that mean for you? So when he was on category A, could you see more or less? Was he allowed more or less phone calls? Yeah, well, when when he was a, a category A prisoner, there was more restrictions around him and more restrictions around us being the visitors. Because I remember on some visits, the other visitors would go by without having too much searches. But because we were visiting a category A prisoner, we had to take our shoes off. We had to do extra things to go through security. So, so that, that was, was difficult. And then also him as a category A, you, everywhere you went, it had to be recorded. You had to be on your own in a cell. There were so many more restrictions on you. I think it's what they called on the books. You're on the book and everything is recorded. And, it, and it's a very high security prison and it, it's horrible. And that's where obviously people probably go there first when they've committed their offence. And these people have committed offences, have com- committed terrible offences. And there's people from all walks of life. There's lots of ex-gang members and, and people like that. Also in prison, there's lots of people with mental health problems as well. So there's, there's, there's a lot going on. At the start then, you said that you um, relied on your family a lot. A few friends, some were there, some wasn't. You started up that um, a support group for yes. parents. So that's how you coped at the start of it. Um, what about yes. middle and how are, you, how are you coping with it now? After the support group finished, because um, it was really getting difficult to get funding and it was taking up a lot of energy to get the funding so eventually that folded so I still needed to talk about how I was feeling so I had counselling so I went to counsellors even though they weren't specialists in that area I still went to counselling for the issues around my son and just for my own personal issues as well so I had that I needed to have somebody to talk to and I did have, have a, a counsellor who was very good and tried to put things into spe- perspective for me by saying look you know he's done a third he's done a third you're, th- you're a third of the way through and I remember saying that to me and that helped me to to hold on and then it got to the middle I didn't know if there would be an appeal or if we'd be able to have an appeal um, and I was hoping that the sentence might be able to get reduced, but that wasn't happening. So it was coming to terms with there isn't going to be appeal. I kept praying and thinking, oh, God, please, please let this happen. Please, please, please. But it was apparent that it wasn't going to happen. He would have to do the full amount. And that was in the middle years, very, very, very difficult to, to cope with. Coming to end, I'm, I'm still very worried about my son in prison. I'm still very worried, even though he's got through the prison system and he's in a, a category C prison, which is 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 um, is not as is not high security, but they still got they still got security there. It's it's worrying because like when he rings me, I can I can hear all the noise in the background. I can hear all the shouting. I can hear all the banging of the doors. It's such a stressful environment to be in prison. And at the moment, like I said, being in locked up for 23 hours a day is, is no joke. And, and always constantly 
having to watch your back, having to watch out what people are going to do, what they might do, what's going to happen. There's always something going on. But like my son's been in there a long time. So he kind of knows how to protect himself. But he says to me, I'm always hyper vigilant. He's just like, he goes, I wake up and, not, and uh, I wake up and think, you know, uh, you know, I'm alive today. You know, I survived another day. You know, what, what's going to happen? What's around the corner? You always just have to be alert and aware. There's a lot of dangerous people in there. There's a lot, a lot of people who will or want to do you harm, but there are other people who are okay. But you still have to watch yourself, protect yourself. There's people there who are harming themselves, so they're cutting themselves. There's people there who are shouting through the night because they've got mental health problems. There's people being bullied and targeted. There's prisoners getting urine and feces thrown at them. And there's, oh, there's just so much going on. And it's just worrying about my son being safe. But, he, you know, and that, that's a massive thing. Has he, has he had any... Uh, repercussions of, of what he did in prison because I know sometimes in prison if if you do certain things and um, people hear about it and you know some people might think that it was bad as what he did and he deserves yeah. more you know yeah. like prison punishment rather than yeah. the judges give it yeah. did that happen with yeah. him or has, has he been alright with that side of things yeah. well not as far as I know I don't think people have um have, have, have um, thought he deserves more because I think what would have made it worse if, it, if the person that he killed was somebody in our own community, I think there would have been so many more repercussions from that. But as it was a stranger, it, it made things a little bit different because I, I can imagine if you've gone into prison and you've killed somebody and somebody's from that area yeah. or from that area or from that ends or this ends, they'll be on your toes, that's what they say, they'll be onto you, but because it was a stranger, somebody out of the community, it, it didn't have a backlash. I say it all boils down to one minute of madness. Yes. But what, so that one minute of madness where, you know, he did something, whether it was wrong or right, and it, and it yes. played out, he had a plan, it didn't but a plan, whatever it was, it, so it boils yeah. down to this one minute of madness. Now yes. that one minute, can you tell me the effect that it's had on your life? For that one minute of making those bad choices, that one minute of taking that life, that knife with him, has had such a profound effect on our family and him and such a profound effect on the victim and their family. And we can't go back and change it. And my son has got every single day for the rest of his life to deal with it and to, to wonder why he did or why he's in this situation now. The fact that he's like my only child, he was young, He's taken away from me, although, yes, he committed the offence. He's still taken away from me, away from his family for years, not weeks, not months, but for, for decades. He's growing up in prison, basically. He's missing out on having his family life, having his own children, having relationships, being around his family. He's spending his birthdays in prison. He's spending Christmas in prison. And 
and I'm not talking about one years or two years, I'm talking about decades mm. of missing out on all of that and longing and yearning. He yearns to be back on the road, yearns to be back out and we long for him to be with us and we, and we miss him so much because he's not part of the family. He's, well, he is part of the family, but he's not able to, to join with us. I'm not able to sit down with him on the settee and just do a simple thing that I took for granted, like having a meal, having a cup of tea, watching TV. I can't do those things with him. He's hundreds of miles away from me. I, I can't get to him. I can't access him until I go on a, on a visit. I, I just miss him so much. And I just want him to be back as my little boy, that I can protect him and I can look after him. I wish we could we could turn back the hands of time, but we can't. So that's why it's so important not to pick up the knife. The effects can be devastating. Ultimately, yeah, taking the knife is is you see it as your future's in your hands because you're the one holding your knife. But the incident, yeah. what happens to your son, just goes to prove that once you carry that knife. It's not in your hands. Your future is unbeknown to you and whoever's at the receiving end, you know. So yes. I think that's a very, very good message that he did send, telling the yes. people to think twice about carrying the knife. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a parent myself, so in my mm -hmm. mind, I've got a vision of my children when they mm -hmm. get to 21, when they get to 30, you know, those kind of milestones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did, what did you think he'd do when he was little? Yeah, well, I, I hope that he was going to go to university because um, I, I encouraged him to stay on at school and he stayed on at school and then he went to college and, and that's where he met his co-defendant. Co so, okay. you, should, you, you know what I mean? That's, well, yeah. I was putting him on the, on the right road and I was hoping that he was going to go to university. I don't think he was keen at that time so much, but even so... Um, you know, just, just, just to maybe go to university to maybe get a good job. I think he, um, he I think he even applied for applied for a job in a solicitor's. Okay. So you could imagine that he could have been the one on the on the helping side, yeah. rather than being the being the defendant. But I think I don't think he was at that t t at when he was younger that keen on doing further education. And I think a lot of kids are, they just can't, you know, they're just not feeling it right there and then. But I yeah. did want him to, I did want him to go to university. I kind of just thought maybe he would might end up in computers or something like that or something in, in IT. But just wanted him to be happy and maybe meet somebody and maybe, you know, settle down and have a family. Yeah. Just, just normal, just normal life. I, this is not what we wanted for him at all it's, mm. it's totally unexpected and it's totally out of out of character but you wouldn't have predicted this situation but the the one thing that may have changed it that would have changed the outcome was not carrying the knife mm. that is the thing that would have made all the difference if he went out and did a robbery that's a bad thing to do but you wouldn't have ended up killing the person and if he wasn't even in your right mind, you probably wouldn't have ended up killing the person. It was the knife. If you could have spoken to him via telephone or bumped into him while he was 
you know, on the way to do it, what would you have told him? I would have been absolutely shocked and, and, and said, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you thinking? Why are you carrying that knife? What, what is even in your head? Why are you even wanting to go out robbing? That is just not how you were brought up. So that's what I wish I would have said to him. I would have just like, take, I would have been so angry and so mad and probably shook him. So what are you doing? What yeah. are you doing? And you better come back home because this living out of home is not doing you any good. Mm. Especially, you know, having all that time away from home to, to, to smoke. And, and it's having, it's having, it's having a, a deeper and deeper and deeper effect on your mental health. I wish I'd been able to stop it and stop him and shake him, basically. What are you doing? What are you thinking of? We're done for the questions. Um, yeah. I'd like to thank you for your time. Um, you know, there's a lot of positives we can take away from this podcast. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add or anything you'd like to give yeah. more detail to? I'd, like I said, I just, I just wanted to do this um, podcast just to save another family from going through what we're going through, what my son's going through, and to save another family from losing somebody forever and ever and ever. And for any professionals or families and young people out there to know how important it is not to carry a knife. It's not a defense. You're more likely to get hurt by the knife or you're likely to um, kill somebody or hurt somebody even if you didn't intend to it's it is a lethal weapon please think twice before you act and put the knife down and make good choices for yourself and for your family mm. so that's and, and, all i wanted to say yeah that's great and that you know the, especially the young people they need to it's hard to understand that you've got a future in front of you when you're oh, 17 God, and 18 yes. It's, some, it's a concept that's very, very hard to grasp. I couldn't grasp it until I'd grown up a bit myself. I was about yes. 26, 27 when I thought to myself, yes. wait a minute, I've got a lot longer to live than what I've been alive. So yes. the decisions yes. that I had to make then soon changed, changed into positive ones and ones that yes. I know I, I wouldn't have to deal with later on in life. Yes, you just because you don't want to have these terrible, terrible regrets in life. Think about what you want for the future. Think about what you want for yourself and for your family. You know, yes. Think, you know, prepare a positive future for yourself. I'd like to thank you and all the best in the future. I hope that it, somebody will, um, you know, will take it on board what we've been talking about today. Thanks for listening. We hope you have enjoyed our podcast. You can keep up to date with the work we do around knife crime, gun crime and gang violence via our website www.alwaysanalternative.org.uk or our social media pages at AAA Mindset. Goodbye!